Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. We're talking Julio Jones to the Buccaneers, the FFPC Pros versus Joes contest, and the Cleveland Browns wide receiver core on Roto Viz Radio. What's up, Roto Viz? Welcome into the Rotoviz Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm Dave Cabin alongside Curtis Patrick. We are two of the owners here at Rotoviz. I'm excited to have Curtis back so we can hear some more about how his pros versus Joe's draft went. Uh, it's always fun to hear how these drafts that have various people from the industries and get fans involved, how those pan out but curtis before we can even get into pleasantries i have to hit a fantasy headline it only feels right julio jones a player at an advanced age not playing perhaps at the level that he once was a wily veteran now finds himself like so many other players heading down to sunny tampa florida to receive passes from Tom Brady. Uh, many people were waiting to see where Julio would sign. A lot of people in those best ball drafts very happy to take the discount on Julio. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of ramifications from an ADP perspective and a uh, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Russell Gage in particular perspective. So we'll talk about some of that. Uh, but I just wanted to drop that headline because I think it's going to take us into our stat attack. How are you doing? Yeah, I, I will see your headline uh, music drop and raise you a stat attack okay. mic drop. All right, and this episode's FFPC stat attack, of course, to you, uh, brought to you by myffpc.com, the home of high-stakes fantasy football. Dave, the stat attack tonight is two. Just the number two. two. Oh, and, and, boy. And what do I mean by the number two? I think two I know. Two is the number of... <laughs> two. <laughs> yeah, end of episode. Yeah. Um, two is the number of seasons with a, a hundred receptions and a thousand yards that Larry Fitzgerald posted after the age of 32. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think that it's interesting to try to uh, draw some parallels between late career Larry Fitzgerald and late career... 
uh, Julio Jones uh, for several reasons. Um, now, you know, Julio's uh, 30s have looked a little bit different uh, than Larry Legend's. Um, you know, Julio's only played 19 games the last uh, two seasons. He's been riddled with uh, injuries. But when he's been on the field, you know, his yards per reception have, have remained, you know, pretty much in line with, with his peak performance. I mean, he, even in his rough season with Ryan Tannehill and the Tennessee Titans when he was basically playing every couple games, he still managed 14 yards per uh, reception. And, you know, that, that was only a, uh, a yard below what, what he averaged with Matt Ryan the year before in Atlanta and right in line with what he did in his age 29 and 30 seasons when, um, you know, he was basically still a fantasy league winner uh, back at that time. So health seems to be what has held Julio down in his age 31 and 32 seasons. Looking at Larry Fitzgerald, um, he had a similar lull in performance. It actually started a few years earlier. Um, you know, he became a much less efficient receiver around the age of 29. You know, the post-Kurt Warner era for Larry uh, Fitzgerald was um, unfortunately tied to a lot of inferior quarterback play. Um, and, and so it's not just maybe that, that Larry had to reinvent himself. It's also that he was playing with inferior uh, signal callers. But age 29 season, 156 targets, just 71 receptions and fewer than 800 yards receiving. Age 30 season, 135 targets, just 82 receptions and under 1,000 yards receiving. And then that age 31 season, uh, again, under 800 yards receiving. But then he uh, he's reunited with some superior quarterback play. The Cardinals bring Carson Palmer in. Things look a little bit better than they did in the Drew Stanton era, John Skelton era, and that other laundry list of quarterbacks he had to play with during that dark, dark time. And in 2015, 2016, 2017, Larry Fitzgerald goes for 109, 107, 109 receptions, over 1,000 yards in each of those seasons and six or more touchdowns in each of those seasons. So a very, you know, uh, I, I guess approaching the mid-30s, you know, he's still just slaying uh, in, in fantasy even at age 34. You know, so Julio, not only um, do we have an opportunity for him for the very, maybe just for the second season in his career, for him to not be clearly far and away the best uh, offensive player on his team. You know, I think at 32, you know, you can argue maybe that A.J. Brown, uh, you know, perhaps was was better, even if the two of them were healthy last year. But now he goes, there's no pressure. Um, he can kind of slide in like Antonio Brown did as the savvy veteran uh, that I guess opposing defenses can't really key in on. Uh, if, if they don't want to get torched by Evans and Godwin. And, you know, he's going to get the best quarterback play of his entire career. I mean, I'll take Tom, I'll take age 45 Tom Brady over any season of Matt Ryan's career at this point. And so I don't think that we can write Julio off. Now, you and I have been targeting Julio uh, all offseason, you know, on the chances that he would sign, you know, you would get the ADP spike. And, you know, obviously he's going to be in the mix for, significant snap share, significant route involvement. I was, I, I checked right before the show. I was 22% exposed on underdog. Uh, Sean Siegel just dropped a great article breaking down uh, the entire Bucks receiving core that I would encourage all the listeners to check out uh, over on Rotoviz right now called the real risk with Evans before and after the Jones signing. And, you know, he draws a lot of the same um, uh, conclusions that, that, that I did is that Julio really hasn't actually fallen off as precipitously as his fantasy production would maybe lead you to believe it's really just the health. And, you know, Sean argues that, you know, Julio should be considered a top 50 wide receiver at this point. 
Um, you know, an underdog that's going to put you in that nine ten range, you know, where MVS and Michael Gallup are going, um, you know, Gallup's more in like that 12th round range, but MVS often you have to go in the ninth or 10th round. So, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to think what Julio might be able to do, especially after seeing uh, how effective Antonio Brown was in the context of the offense. So this is basically the nuts. You know, if you've been drafting Julio all off season, you got to be pretty pumped, but you know, you can't really do much other than celebrate what's in your portfolio and arrears moving forward. It's, you know, how high would you push him? And I think it's, it's kind of cool that Mike Evans will get a little bit cheaper. Um, Russell Gage, I think is, he's got to be pretty much dead, right? Um, I mean, he's, he's going to drop from like that sixth, seventh round, probably to the mid teens, I think 13, 14. And then, you know, with Godwin, he was already pretty cheap. Um, and I think he gets a little bit cheaper until we are absolutely sure of when he's going to play. I mean, everything's been, you know, all, all the news has been pretty positive. Maybe that he's trending towards week one availability, but there's even more reason to play it cautious and make sure that they, they don't rush him here. So, man, I mean, Brady, this is, you know, he loses Gronk. He gains Julio Jones from one, from one Hall of Famer to another. Uh, the, the rich get richer. And, you know, I guess that's what happens when, you know, people – you know, want to chase rings late in their career. But I thought it was interesting to draw some parallels between Julio and Larry. You know, the, the greats tend to just stay great until they're done. Um, and I'm not sure that the the traditional age apex is going to apply to Julio um, in the absence of health. I mean, I think he's just going to be a good receiver until he hangs it up uh, or just can't actually go onto the field. He's that good. So uh, any takeaways for you there, Dave, or do you think that I'm, I'm really stretching to draw some parallels uh, with Fitzgerald there? Well, I think that looking at a player like Larry Fitzgerald makes sense. Uh, if you're trying to get a context over what Julio at this point in his career could look like, knowing that he is an outlier type of player, there's only so many players you can look at, you know, especially guys um, that we know kind of have that mold that you could look at who were playing in recent time um, without needing to go back so far. So so I, I definitely think it's worthwhile to look at that. Now, I haven't had a chance to really sit down and think about the different ways that Julio should function in that offense and how this is likely to specifically impact target shares. But my initial reaction was for Evans and Godwin, I don't think this changes very much. It changes things tremendously, though, for Russell Gage um, and Cameron Brait in light of the fact now that things are looking better for Godwin. Kyle Rudolph is getting thrown into this mix here. Not that I think there's a whole lot left for Kyle Rudolph, but now we're seeing more ancillary players that Brady can spread the ball around to. This might take away one or two of those weeks from those other guys that you were hoping they'd be able to accrue over the course of the season. As far as Julio goes specifically, I do agree. When you go in and you look at the numbers, it's hard to say that Julio has completely fallen off putting him in that range somewhere between wide receiver, maybe even 38 to wide receiver 50 feels appropriate. I think at this point in his career, he's not quite as good as Antonio Brown was. I think that uh, Antonio Brown might fit in a little bit better in this offense. But I think that as long as we don't see Julio 
what would be interesting to see what people do, right? Because if they had Russell Gage at six in like a sixth round valuation, where is Julio going to go to? That would get far too rich for me. Um, but I do think, especially <laughs> on best ball rosters, you know, <laughs> we're already excited because we got him so cheap, but he can move up, uh, you know, maybe even like 10th, 11th round. And I would think about it. Yeah, I think um, the player that Sean and I won't tell you what Sean thinks yeah. uh, because I don't want to I don't want to ruin the article. I, I want people to, to go read it. Um, but I am curious of your opinion here. Where would you be on Julio versus DeAndre Hopkins? You know, Hopkins, we know, is going to miss six weeks of the season and then come back in uh, and, and try to carve out his role, you know, now with with Hollywood and, and Rondell Moore. Um, being pretty in, in, entrenched probably by week seven uh, versus Julio, who, you know, should be available right at the beginning of the season. Um, but we'll have all of that, you know, target competition probably at week one as well. Right. I would say that I'm a fair amount higher on Hopkins, who I'm actually a little bit down on this season. But the reason is in my opinion, there's still a pretty decent chance that Hopkins, when he is available, is the main uh, focus there in the receiving game. He's the player that gets targeted the most, that gets the highest quality targets. I think that's in play. As a result of that, he does carry some upside or has a higher ceiling, I think, than Jones does because to me, it's very hard to envision a scenario where Jones is one of the top two pieces in that offense, seeing the highest quality targets. I think it's possible he could be efficient when he's in there, um, but what he would be able to achieve, I think, is severely capped in comparison to what Hopkins would be able to achieve in a you know high-end outcome. Yeah, and, and um, I think just to, to counterbalance, you know, maybe my enthusiasm around Julio being one of the all-time greats and still, yeah. you know, when he actually touches the ball being effective, you know, his, his evasion rate hasn't really changed. And like, as I mentioned, his yards per reception hasn't actually changed, but how he's operated within the context of multiple offenses over the last three years um, has changed these two injury, injury riddled seasons. Um, it's hard to separate. Was he playing maybe when he shouldn't? Um, or was he never really fully healthy or is there a little bit of decline that is mixed in with some of the injury? Cause if you go into the advanced stat explorer, you can see, uh, that his, uh, targets per route, um, have decreased three seasons in a row. Uh, and also his yards per route run, um, have decreased, uh, decreased precipitously last season. Now, how much of that is, uh, you know, right. Ryan Tannehill and the Titans offense versus, you know, coming from Atlanta, you know, it's not just a, a wide receiver stat, but not all of the peripherals are, are great. Now with Julio, he can kind of fall off and still be better than a lot of people. Um, and, you know, still kind of top 50, still ahead of even players like Mike Evans and uh, some of those peripherals, even after sliding uh, off a little bit there. But um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting case study. We'll have to monitor the health. Uh, not only of Jones, but also of Godwin. And it's just exciting, man. You know, you know, just as a fan of the game. Right. It's to, very exciting. To think from about the all-time greats. Yeah. The all-time yeah. greats, you know, I mean, when was, the, look, Mike, Mike Evans statistically and from a consistency standpoint is having a historically great yep. career, but he'll never be confused as having been like the best receiver or even like a top five receiver in a given season, probably in any of the years of his career, 
Whereas Julio, hands down, for multiple seasons, you know, of course, the overlap with Antonio Brown's career uh, will be an interesting one for the Hall of Fame voter, uh, voters to debate one day. But, you know, he was definitely a top two or top one receiver for multiple seasons in his career. And the last time we saw Brady get that was, you know, the magic that he created with Randy Moss. So, um, you know, just in the context of Brady's career, even at an advanced age, you got to imagine that he's pretty pumped about having Julio uh, over there on his sideline wearing his colors. For sure. So I will just close with saying that, you know, some of the enthusiasm that I have for this isn't so much that all of a sudden Julio becomes this great fantasy asset. It's just that there's another interesting player out there who maybe, you know, contributes to your team. It's a fun play and you're able to get him a little bit later than you're used to getting Julio Jones in drafts. So I think that takes us through um, the impact of Julio ending up there uh, real quick. Do we need to allot any time to the fact that Kyle Rudolph is now in Tampa Bay? I mean, I think probably. Yeah. Um, I don't think that Brait really would have been a target hog, but you could have counted on him probably for, you know, maybe one or two multi-touchdown games. Um, and, and, you know, obviously all it really takes for a tight end is one touchdown uh, to basically be a top, you know, 15 guy in any given week. So it would have made Brait an immense value with how late he was going. This certainly muddies the waters. I mean, Kyle Rudolph was one of the top tight ends for a couple of seasons. Uh, he's a couple of seasons removed from that. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's problematic. Um, yeah, I think it's problematic for Brait in terms of being a consistent producer. So uh, I, I'm kind of just not interested really in, in either one of the guys, yep. uh, but it's possible it's possible that one or both would be maybe out on your dynasty wave waiver wire, um, depending on how you know deep your league is. And so uh, Rudolph in particular may have been kicked to the curb and, you know, he's obviously worth a, a claim at this point. Um, but that's more applicable in dynasty than, than in redraft, I think. All right, Curtis. So you spent some time drafting in an FFPC oh, yeah. pros versus Joe's contest last night. Um, Give us a little bit of background on the context, how you've done historically, because I know that you've crushed it, and then kind of oh, yeah. tell us how this draft went, maybe some of the surprising things, things that went as planned, and any you know actionable takeaways there might be. So, yeah, you know, I talked about in the, in the FFPC stat attack, um, you know, about it being, you know, the premier place to play high stakes fantasy football. And, you know, the pros versus Joe's contest is, is a proud tradition that's been going on. Uh, for well over a decade at this point. And it's just a really cool event. Um, they try to pit some of the, uh, you know, well-known industry types against some of the the highest performing, um, you know, they call them Joes, but, you know, you, you would argue that they are the real pros, right. um, you know, in a vacuum. You know, these are guys that are highly successful playing really competitive fantasy football and uh, they're winning year after year and, and they want to test their medal. Uh, and get the bragging rights against the industry. So it's a really cool contest. Um, and, you know, I've been paired up actually with Ryan McDowell for this is our fifth season um, now. And Ryan and I have had an unprecedented run of success. And the only thing holding us back really from being the number one ranked performers in the history of pros versus Joe's is just longevity. Uh, so in, in our first four seasons, uh, we had uh, three division runner up 
finishes. And then last year we won our division, finished uh, fourth overall in the contest, won a, a free entry into the FFPC main event. Um, thanks to that win. And yeah, so, I mean, we've played for four years, never finished worse than, than second. And uh, you know, we had to come in and, and, and really, you know, earn our, earn our stripes, but uh, we entered this contest as, as five to one betting favorites um, in, in a very stacked, <laughs> yeah, in a very stacked that, yeah, they actually do lay odds for these contests, uh, a stacked division, man. Uh, so we had John Hansen from fantasy points, yep. uh, uh, friend of Rotoviz, uh, Peter Overzet, and now fantasy life uh, and serious XM radio star uh, drafting in this draft. Um, we also had uh, Todd Burroughs, um, uh, big time best ball player uh, for many years was really active um, back in the day when Mike Beers and I were doing the best ball command center. Uh, Todd's very well known in the industry. And then one of the the top, um, again, Joe's, but really our pros players, uh, Mike Zuka uh, also mm-hmm. in this draft. So it's, it's really, really difficult to navigate uh, Sharky waters. Ryan and I drew the 11 spot and, you know, obviously going into a contest like this, you know, we're thinking, you know, we'd like to maybe build a hero RB team or maybe even a zero RB team. Um, we've done that, I think, three out of the four previous seasons and obviously had a lot of success. But our calling card really has been also finding um, the deep values after round like eight. Uh, we've just seemed to be really crushing that draft uh, area every year. And so we were really excited to see what we could do in the, in the back half of the draft, but the top of the board just fell in a way that we built an atypical way as atypical nice. for each of us. Um, and I would say atypical versus what we typically preach at Rotoviz. But one thing that we do preach here, regardless of the type of structural uh, build that you might put together is sometimes, you know, you need to zig when everyone else is, is zagging. And the way this board fell, it did not, it did not line up for us to go early wide receiver at the one, two corner. Um, so the top of the board went as expected, Dave, you know, Jonathan Taylor, one one yep. then Cooper cup, Christian McCaffrey, Justin Jefferson, Jamar chase, Austin Eckler, Travis Kelsey, no surprises yet, but now you're into that range where we're thinking, okay, are we going to get the chance to maybe start Diggs and Devonte Adams at that corner? But no, Diggs goes 108. CD Lamb actually goes 109. And then Dalvin Cook goes 110. Oh, wow. So we're sitting there. Derrick Henry, Najee Harris, Joe Mixon, Mark Andrews, Devontae Adams all sitting there. We know we're going to get two of those five guys. And so we just went through an exercise. And this is something that Sean and I do every year for our, our main event drafts. And it's something that Ryan and I have done now three years in a row is reverse engineering um, your early rounds based off of what you think will be available later in the draft. And as we looked at the board um, using the, the FFPC ADP uh, from our Rotoviz tools, uh, we, we sorted on the, the most recent week of drafts. We had almost a hundred drafts worth of data in there. It became very apparent to us that we were going to have some wide receiver tight end and quarterback values really throughout the balance of, you know, round four through round 10 or 11 and we didn't like a lot of the, the running backs that were going to be there. So we decided to go double early running back and ignore the position for a while. So um, not something that Ryan and I would typically do, but we came away with Derrick Henry and Joe Mixon there in the first two rounds. And of course, we'll need health. You know, it's a fragile situation, but, you know, we might have two of the top four backs on this squad despite drafting at the 11 spot. 
Now, Dave, um, what are your thoughts there based off of who was available? And then maybe I'll, I'll just run down through some of the highlights of the draft uh, without taking up a whole episode here. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Yeah, well, I think that the point about reverse engineering, um, especially in a draft like this that's going to be so competitive, that point is well taken. I can't say that that's necessarily the direction that I would have gone, but I think it does make sense, um, you know, in the context in which you framed it. So I don't know if I have any qualms with it because I'm sure that you guys were able to round up the Mm -hmm. roster having gone through that process in a way that I'm probably going to be okay with. So, you know, not too harsh of a reaction here for me. Uh, The one thing I might float out and call me crazy, but I actually might have been interested in getting Najee Harris into that mix instead of uh, Joe Mixon. Yeah. And, and we talked about that. We, we were pretty even on all three guys, um, where we went there, uh, with, with Mixon. Well, well, first off, it, we would have had to have taken, uh, Najee over. Oh, Derek that's Henry true. Because yeah. We, we, that because we took Derrick Henry first yep. and then Najee went at the corner. Um, so, so, and, and that's the exact conversation that we had. We were like, okay, which one of these guys is most likely to, to make it to the corner. And, and we, we agreed that it would be Mixon. Yep. Um, and so then it really just came down to, okay, if both of these guys hit their optimal, you know, who's more likely to be the league winner. I mean, it's hard to argue with Derek Henry scoring like 386 PPR a couple years ago. And he was on pace, you know, for the same production last season. Um, and so, so we went that direction with a lot, you know, Pittsburgh having probably an improved offense, despite the question marks at quarterback, um, you know, it did come into the picture there. But we just didn't feel like Najee had the same level of asymmetric upside that Derrick Henry had. Got it. Um, so, you know, what it really came down to, I and mean, maybe we'll focus on this since I can tell you're a little conflicted about the start. I mean, the only receiver that we could have taken uh, would have been Devontae Adams, who would have made sense. You know, we're not going to take Mike Evans at the 202. We're not even going to take Debo or as much as I love Tyree Kill. You know, we're not taking them in that range. They're not good values there. Mm-hmm. So it, it really just came down to Adams versus Mixon. And, um, you know, we could have at that point gone with a hero RB build and taken Adams. But again, if you look at the standard deviation, uh, which does show up within the road of his uh, ADP, we just didn't feel very good about the backs that were going to be available at our corner really throughout the balance of the draft. And it really did end up falling that way too, as it played out. So it was a little bit, um, it, it, it was a little bit of a, uh, 
a confirmation that occurred because we just didn't have access to the types of backs that, that we would have wanted to. And it made me actually felt better and better about the strategy as it went on. Um, when we went into the third round, we, we took George Kittle at, at 311, uh, felt great about that, got him as the tight end five. Uh, Darren Waller actually went a half round earlier. Um, and we were conflicted there too because we're thinking, okay, in this, in this contest, you know, we've now won our division and we've been runner up in our division three times. We want to win the whole thing. And so we're talking about who are those win the whole thing players. Um, we were conflicted because Brian Harris at the one tw- at the, the 12, he had taken Mark Andrews in the second, but I know you've played a lot of FFPC just like me, Dave. And, and the, the yep. double elite tight end start is very common in this tight end premium format we were worried that if we didn't take Kittle 311, that with that double tap available on the corner, that Harris would be really tempted to add Kittle to Andrews. And, and we just felt like we had to have Kittle. Unfortunately, it meant that we missed on Cortland Sutton, who was a player that we both agreed had mid wide receiver one upside um, if everything goes right in, in Denver. Um, so he takes Sutton at the corner. Um, we come back and get Hollywood Brown at the 402, which I'm sure uh, you're okay with. Yep. God, Chris Godwin, of course, you know, Julio Jones hadn't been signed yet. Chris Godwin's our fifth round pick. Now we get all the way to the, to the sixth round. None of the quarterbacks have been going, mm. you know, we get Josh, Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes are the only two quarterbacks off the board. And we sensed an opportunity to start a quarterback waterfall. Now, so now an important question though, Yeah, uh, is this best ball or ro- managed rosters? It's best ball. Yeah. It's right. best ball. So that's, that's key. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely key uh, because, you know, you can, you know, solve, uh, solve some of the scenario um, death by a thousand paper cuts, um, you know, with who you're drafting and the positions that you invest in. Well, at six, we, we felt like we got a a multi round value here. And even though we had an opportunity to stack Kyler Murray and Hollywood Brown, we actually opted to take Justin Herbert um, all the way down in the sixth round. Wow, nice. Uh, in this in this contest, even though it, we didn't have a stack in front of them. Now we'll come back and address that later in the draft. Um, but we correctly predicted that we could force a run on the position because we saw Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, and Russell Wilson all go off the board before we came back around. Um, so that was really nice. And it, and it caused us, Dave, to, to have access to a player you and I have talked a lot about, Alan Lazard. Uh, it, we took him early in the seventh to make sure that we would get him. He's only our third wide receiver at this point. Uh, come back with Chase Edmonds in the eighth. And then in the ninth, we, we go early on our QB two and take Aaron Rodgers to stack him with Alan Lazard. And, and we're done with quarterback at that point. Um, our 10th round pick is Traylon Burks. And our 11th round pick is Jarvis Landry. So now through five wide receivers, we've got Hollywood, Chris Godwin, Alan Lazard, Traylon Burks, and Jarvis Landry. Uh, later on in the draft, we go on to stack uh, Isaiah Spiller and Josh Palmer with Justin Herbert uh, in the later rounds of the draft. And we also added Sammy Watkins as a double stack on Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Will Fuller, you know, we did not take Julio Jones. We did take Will Fuller, who could see a similar ADP bump, um, you know, if, if he were to sign anywhere. And uh, Daryl Williams was our, our final running back. So I don't, I don't know if you have any critiques of the team. You know, this, the strength of this team really is actually the double elite uh, anchor <laughs> running back uh, Kittle, who we think has overall tight end one upside and the range of outcomes tools agree. And then, you know, of course um, probably having the strongest uh, quarterback pairing or perhaps maybe the second strongest pairing, depending on if you like the cousins 
and Prescott stack better than Herbert and Rogers. I don't uh, happen no, to, don't. but um, some might. Uh, so yeah, got any critique for us there? I actually like how it turned out. Um, I got to be honest. I, I really like what you guys did with the quarterbacks. I think that in um, FFPC leagues this year, uh, especially best ball leagues, that's going to be something that's going to work in your favor. Uh, I think getting Kittle was really key. Um, so I really like that. And I think that you guys were able to get a pretty good balance of wide receivers in that you have significant upside with some of them. Um, and it still isn't like overly risky, if you will. You also got some stacks in there. So I think that you guys did a good job of building out a well-rounded team, especially one that you're kind of doing on the fly. So I think to to help make this just a little bit more actionable, right? When we talk about reverse engineering, um, obviously that is thinking about what you're going to do in the later rounds to influence what you're going to do in the earlier rounds. Is there any piece to that process that's kind of worth mentioning that might be helpful for people that haven't gone through that exercise yet? Yeah, it's definitely most useful if you're drafting towards the corners uh, okay. just because it's so much yeah, it's so much easier to predict uh, who you're going to have access to. You know, if you draw the 1617, you know, reverse engineering your draft gets to be pretty difficult because, you know, really within the context of just one weird draft room, you know, any player hypothetically could really fall to you because you're not having these long 20, 22, 24 pick weights, um, you know, between picks. Um, but when you're drafting towards one of the corners, and, and when I say towards one of the corners, I'm going to say within three three picks of either corner, there's enough of a weight where your picks are going to fall outside the range of even pretty wide uh, distributions and standard yeah. deviations within the ADP. Then you can use our tools uh, to look at that. So so Ryan and I, what we did is we actually uh, we we downloaded the ADP. Uh, you can you can grab your own uh, CSV file right there from the site. Anyone with a Rotoviz sub can do that. And uh, we just created our own little dashboard where we basically took every player off um, that we didn't feel had a realistic shot of getting to us. And then we built our draft board from there. Love it. Um, and the only, t the only time that we really veered from that um, Herbert fell, you know, about a round and a half past where he had been going in ADP to the point where we felt like we had to take him. Um, and then kind of looking at how the, the draft was shaping up, uh, did cause us to reach um, about a round and a half early on Lazard, but we, you know we both felt conviction there that you know if if the Packers don't sign somebody else, um, Lazard is at worst going to be Aaron Rodgers' wide receiver two uh, in 2022, and Aaron Rodgers' wide receiver two for the most part would still be considered a value in round seven. But there's a very likely scenario where Alan Lazard is going to be Aaron Rodgers wide receiver one. And if that's the case, I mean, you know, he should be going above Amari Cooper. He should be going above Brandon Cooks. He should be going above DK Metcalf. I mean, all of the, if, if we knew for a fact that Alan Lazard was going to be the Packers wide receiver one, he would be a late fourth round pick uh, at worst. And so, you know, our, our discussion really became that, we were going to frame um, the, the late single digit rounds around targeting 
Lazard in this draft as a differentiating factor that uh, after we took, you know, Henry and Mixon and or not, not after we took Henry and Mixon, but when it became apparent, we were going to go double early running back uh, in the planning phases. Um, we had to find those guys. And so we found Lazard in the seventh. Yep. We found Burks in the 10th um, who, you know, is having ADP depression because of camp noise. You know, do we really think that Burks is, uh, whatever breathing problems or, or asthma that he has, um, whatever, you know, it still seems a little bit vague what's actually going on there. Yet he was still able to be one of the best college football players in the country uh, over the last couple of years. To me, this feels a lot like Jamar Chase not being able to catch the ball because it doesn't have a white stripe on it. Um, and so, you know, we took Burks there. And then, of course, our, our old uh, stalwart uh, favorite uh, of the last decade, Jarvis Landry, <laughs> who looks like the far and away wide receiver one for yes, the Saints, sir. but just somehow just keeps hanging out there, you know, after pick 120 in fantasy drafts. It makes no sense to me. Um, and so we felt like between Landry um, and Lazard, we have a little bit of protection if Godwin doesn't play the first month of the season, you know, those types of things. But the, both players obviously also have some upside in their own right. So you can kind of do it two ways. You know, the first the first part of the exercise with reverse engineering the draft was from a positional standpoint, what did it make sense for us to do in the first three rounds? And then and then once you decide that, you have to dig in on some flag plant players who you can anchor on in those later rounds to make the rest of the draft make sense. Um, and, you know, we were able to do that mostly around access uh, to the Packers offense, which feels a little unsettled, but if it's anything like what we've seen in Aaron Rodgers' career, we'll probably end up being efficient and it'll all work out. Yeah. So one note that I want to add here, um, in in the best ball tools in the command centers, um, while you're actually drafting, we do have columns that will show you the probability of players being there mm-hmm. at your next picks. And then in the draft dashboard, um, I also have in there columns that are going to use the standard deviation and the ADP from the site that you're at to also give you the percentage uh, likelihood that players will be available at different picks. Um, And I've done some math so that you can do it for all of the different sites that there's ADP in there, even if they don't list inherent, like, you know, specifically list uh, standard deviation on their site. So those are pretty cool things too. So if you go in and you start playing around with the with the draft dashboard, um, that's another way that you can kind of work on reverse engineering your draft by practicing a couple of times, seeing the types of players that were available, looking at those percentages, maybe when you're towards the later rounds and thinking about how things could play out in your draft. Curtis, I had mentioned that we were going to talk about the Cleveland wide receiver core. I actually want to bump that into next episode, unless you tell me that you think it's a pretty quick conversation. Um, I mean, it's probably pretty quick, but we can save it for the next episode. Uh, Cause I do want to, um, point out a couple of strategies right. uh, used by other teams in the competition here. So, uh, you know, Pete Overzet had the 107 and he was able to do more of what we would call a traditional rid of his structural uh, draft going Travis Kelsey in round one, uh, DeAndre Swift as an anchor RB in, in round two. And then uh, to use Pete's words, uh, he pissed yellow uh, for the next five right. five rounds, uh, taking DJ Moore, Deontay Johnson, Jerry Judy, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Drake London. Um, and so you have a very traditional 
um, you know, anchor RB draft along with the uh, elite tight end. That's the best way to do it. And then he took some upside uh, at, at quarterback. Um, with Trey Lance and Trevor Lawrence. So, I, you know, I like his draft. He did come back and fill it out with some um, pretty solid zero RB targets. Um, you know, he's going he's definitely going to need some of these guys to pop because, you know, I, I think arguably you would want a player maybe more solid than DeAndre Swift if you're going to go anchor RB. Um, the fact that he has Kelsey makes it just feel different. You know, if, if, he, if, the, if the draft had gone differently, you know, like let's say – he had Eckler in the first round and Pitts in the second or Andrews in the second, you know, maybe you would feel differently about that than, than Swift, who is a player who hasn't really put it all together at the, the, uh, the position yet, but in rounds 10, 11, 12, and 13, which are good uh, money rounds for those uncertain backfield running backs with the, that we typically target. Uh, he put together a quartet of James Cook, Ronald Jones, Daryl Henderson, and Tyler Algier. Um, you know, those are all guys that are pretty well liked by team Rotoviz and in, in particular, uh, Henderson and Algier are favorites of, of yours and, and, and mine, yep. Dave. And I know Sean and Ben talk a lot about James Cook and Ronald Jones. So between the four, the four of those guys <laughs> there, um, you know, I, I think Pete, you know, it's going to get, uh, eight thumbs up, um, from the various podcasts, uh, at Rotoviz on his draft. So I, I appreciated, I guess, living vicariously through his draft because that's typically how I like to put it together and just didn't really formulate that way uh, for us. We had some other interesting strategies. You know, I haven't drafted a lot with uh, John Hansen from fantasy points. I actually really like his team for a dynasty, but man, it's like the all upside team. Um, lots of rookies, lots of young players. Uh, so that was kind of fun. I was getting juiced up thinking about, you know, what his team could look like if everyone hits, uh, but also uh, feeling like, you know, the floor might be a little low, which was making me feel good about some of the uh, veterans that that Ryan and I took. And then um, we did mention Todd at the top of, of the podcast um, just because, you know, he's he's a pretty well-known best ball uh, drafter in the industry. And he has a, a pretty balanced approach, um, even more balanced than, than ours with the way that, that he uh, finished through the first 10 rounds, having three running backs, three receivers, two tight ends, and two quarterbacks. It's about as much balance as you could have. Through the first 10, I think he probably just took the values that presented themselves in each round. That ended up looking like from the 103, uh, McCaffrey, Aaron Jones, A.J. Brown, Allen Robinson, and Rashad Bateman through the first five. Comes back with J.K. Dobbins in the sixth, and then he has a, a quarterback tandem of Russell Wilson and Matthew Stafford, and then Pat Fryermuth and Cole Komet. So, um, you know, pretty balanced team there. And then, you know, it just comes down to the, to the dart throws and the double digit rounds after that. So just really want to, um, you know, shout out, uh, Darren Armani, uh, at fantasy mojo. He's the inventor of the pros versus Joe's contest. If you want to on Twitter, look up a lot of the chatter that's been occurring on this event. Um, cause it's actually a, a multi-night multi-league event. Um, you can just search hashtag pros versus Joe's. Uh, and when, when I say versus it's VS, so pros VS Joe's. Um, and actually Dave, not sure if you were aware, Sean and Ben, um, yes. were invited to the, the, uh, the competition this year and they're actually uh, drafting as we record oh, this. Nice. So it'll be fun, fun to watch them, uh, perform. And, and I'm not sure what draft slot they had, but, um, you know, team, team Rotoviz and friends, you know, with, with Ben obviously being a, a great friend of the site and Ryan as well. Uh, you know, we've got a couple darts out there to, to put another trophy on the, the road of his uh, shelf this year. 
Awesome stuff. So, Curtis, we will be back later in the week. Had fun reviewing this team here. Uh, I like it. I think that you guys have some decent chances of performing well in this tournament. So on behalf of all of the listeners of this podcast, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you for listening to the Rotoviz Fantasy Football Show. Send us questions at rvffshow at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at DaveCabinFF and at CPatrickNFL. Leave us a voicemail at 978-615-9214. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. 